This is Empires of the Future, and this is Jackson Van Dyke. If you've been listening for a while, you'll remember that my friend Matt Castro, my now former co-host, was going to take Empires of the Future with him when he moved to his next job. But he has now started a podcast uh, that is solo for him, and so he was not going to use uh, Empires of the Future. And so my friend Denton Ice and I are going to carry on Empires of the Future. And so here's our first episode. Uh, So we're going to be looking today at this article uh, from the New York Times uh, called The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself. Uh, It is by David Brooks, who is, I don't know if technically, uh, I don't even think he considers himself an evangelical, but has an interest in evangelicalism. Uh, You know, ever since um, it seems that uh, Donald Trump won the presidency largely with the help of evangelicals, uh, there's been a greater interest, once again, in evangelicals, sort yeah. of like uh, when Jimmy Carter first won the presidency, and he yeah. was uh, an, an evangelical, a born-again Christian, and, and just as you see in the Bible that people said, what? How would anybody be born again? The same thing yeah. happened when Jimmy Carter became yeah. president. Yeah. They said, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, that is very true. The word evangelical has um, has become far more, I guess, prevalent in the common vernacular of of our culture um, and not necessarily in a great way uh, because of the fact that far too often, as you know, uh, it is simply referring to a voting block rather than I think what um, the term originally arose meaning. Right? right. So that's a great first question for us to answer from our seats here. What is an evangelical din? Yeah. So, you, you know, we've talked about this before and, and growing up, uh, having been I heard the word evangelical relatively often, uh, it was not something that was foreign to me. And so whenever I heard the term evangelical, I basically just equated it with faithful Christian, mm-hmm. right? If you're a Christian, in my mind, a Protestant Christian specifically, then you are an evangelical. And so, um, yeah, for me, that was my kind of working definition of evangelical. It was not I would say maybe the the what you would call the classical definition of evangelical, but when I heard it, I I think I heard it as a synonym of uh, Protestant Christian, uh, someone who goes to a church that teaches the gospel, um, and really uh, based on you know what I've read and kind of the definition that places like Lifeway uh, and the National Association of Evangelicals, kind of the standards that they use to define. The, to define what is an evangelical, um, I think pretty much are that. Um, so yeah, I would say that is is my understanding of an evangelical, someone who is uh, faithful to the gospel, someone who uh, genuinely cares and sees the need to share the gospel with the lost and encourage them to, uh, to repent of their sins, accept Jesus Christ uh, as their Lord and Savior, um, and recognizing that the, the Bible is the sole authority for the Christian life, um, and that only by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation can you have forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal salvation. And I basically read those verbatim from actually the National Association of Evangelicals website, which is their criteria to you that they use to def- like when they do a poll or whatever to decide if someone is an evangelical. Those right. are the standards that they have to meet in order to be defined in, in their research as an evangelical. Right. And that makes sense. I think uh, you can 
line it out pretty directly down to scripture as the authority for your life, uh, evangelism, because uh, outside of Christ, there is no hope beyond death and no hope in life. Um, and, and those things really start uh, the process, uh, start the, the clearest definition. But here's yeah. the, the issue is that uh, yeah. when you have a situation that, well, where did this group come from that uh, popped up and explained a big part of the uh, divide in the support for Donald Trump, then you're asking a political question. Correct. And that's where it gets a lot more muddy. Oh, yeah. So that uh, an evangelical is also a non-Catholic. So you say that, but there are people out there, and I've met them, uh, who say, I am a Catholic, but I am an evangelical Catholic. Really? Really, really. But obviously... (laughs) This is why it gets too confusing. Yes, (laughs) yes. But obviously, you know, based on the definitions that I just read, according to the National Association of Evangelicals, Lifeway Research... Like, they would have problems with the first one, which is that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Right. Uh, that alone, not to mention the fact that uh, salvation is by trusting in Christ alone. Um, I think there are issues with actual um, true blue Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, but there are some Roman Catholics who would say, I am an evangelical. Right, and... and... That gets to one of the problems of our age, which is uh, everybody wants the full freedom to define themselves yeah. however they feel like, whether that aligns with any kinds of words or any kinds of objective yeah. uh, names at all. Because um, the next thing I would say is that if you are a liberal Protestant, uh, don't define your Christianity by the Bible, then you are not an evangelical. But I am almost certain that there are some Oh, yeah. liberal Protestants who would say, well, I'm an evangelical because I want to be, or because I would, you know, this is my way of defining that. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't want to get uh, too caught up in sure. all the particulars other than to say uh, the ground just starts getting muddier and muddier yes. the further you move away from the simple definition, which yes. is an evangelical. I mean, it's from the term that is a Greek term, the euangelion, the good message, the good news that, look, Jesus has come. The king has already come. Mm-hmm. And he has died, he has risen, mm-hmm. and now we wait. We yeah. wait in the meantime for his return, but we should be faithful in proclaiming that, look, when the yes. king returns, this part of the story is over. Right. You should get right with him. I mean, this is related all the way back to this This message had a context before even Jesus that, oh, look, Rome, Roman rulers yeah. were far afield and conquered, and then they were returning to Rome, and you better decide whose side you're on before they get back, because by the time they get back, uh, they are the conquering ruler. You want to be in their train, uh, and, and that's what you see in the book of Revelation, is that Jesus mm-hmm. defeats his enemies, and in his train are his enemies who he has conquered. Mm-hmm. And will you be in the army with Jesus, or you will you be in the army that opposes yeah. Jesus at the final battle, which is what you see there. So uh, there is that foundational definition, yeah. but because of the issues uh, that we have seen, you have a variety uh, of ways to speak about it. So the evangelical definition gets muddy. Um, here's the first quote I wanted to bring up from yeah. this article. Uh, there have been, uh, quote, uh, David Brooks says, quote, there have been three big issues that have profoundly divided evangelicals. Uh, the white evangelical embrace of Donald Trump, sex abuse scandals in evangelical churches and parachurch organizations, and attitudes about race, race relations, especially after the killing of George Floyd, end quote. Um, so let's start with the first one, uh, the white evangelical embrace of Donald Trump. 
uh, let me ask let me ask this simple question first. Of of all of the Christians that you know how they voted in 2016, uh, what percentage would you say voted for Donald Trump of the ones that you know of? If you don't know, don't guess. Are you talking about in the primary? Uh, because that's I'm, a different question. It, it is a yeah. different question. Uh, let's just, there's so much that could be said about the primary. Let's move all the way to Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. In in the president, presidential election, what percentage of um, faithful Christians that I know that voted for Donald Trump? <sighs> a lot. A okay. lot. I would say, oh man, I would probably say 75% of the people that I know that our, our faithful Christians voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. And then I would say our faithful Christians, even though they, they voted, for, voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to say like, yeah, still are, still are. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I get, um, because remember one thing to say in, in, in moving into this is that in 2016, in this very uncertain season, uh, the final question that was posed uh, in political terms was basically, do you want Donald Trump or do you want Hillary Clinton? Correct. Um, it, it is. It, it seems important to me to start there. Yes. Because there has been much hand wringing about. Well, how could evangelicals sure. vote for Donald Trump? Yeah. When uh, I remember distinctly uh, seeing a person playing Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live playing the piano, celebrating how she had already won. Mm-hmm. And that this was the mood, uh, triumphalism mm-hmm. over the victory of Hillary Clinton, which did seem almost certain. And yeah. then all of a sudden that did not take place. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I put you on the hot seat there. I, I was so surprised at all the things that were happening. Frankly, I didn't yeah. ask a whole lot of people exactly how they were voting. Sure. Um, and so I would say if I knew maybe... Uh, six or eight or ten Christians, how they were voting, I would say also uh, uh, three quarters or so Mm -hmm. that I knew uh, voted for Donald Trump in that election. Now then, let me ask the next question. How quickly um, and how much rationalizing and defending of the behavior of Donald Trump did you see from those same Christians and how quickly did it come? Yeah. So that's a, that is a very different question. And like so many of those Christians, so, so of the, of the 75% of faithful Christians that I know that voted for Donald Trump, I would say really only about maybe 10% of those people offered any sort of defense for Donald Trump's vulgarity, his, um, his behavior, his, you know, just a lot of his, uh, his negatives, I would say, um, you know, very low, very low. The majority of Christians that I know that voted for Donald Trump, uh, voted for Donald Trump as an alternative to Hillary Clinton. They voted for him in spite of the flaws, not because of them. Yeah. Right. Um, and I do think that's an important part of the, of the conversation, which is why I asked, you know, do you, when you asked about how many voted for Donald Trump, um, in, in the primary is a different question. So I had a, I knew a bunch of people that did not vote for Donald Trump during the primaries, but voted for other candidates 
that did end up voting for him in the uh, presidential election. Right. And I think that that weighs in. And he doesn't really mention anything about that. He doesn't really, in the article, I'm talking about David Brooks, doesn't really offer like, okay, that kind of position. position. It's just you, you're supporting Donald Trump, period. Right. You know, um, When there, were, there was a lot of reluctant support for Donald Trump, I would say. Right, and it, and it did start that way. Uh, now, yes. I, I will say that of the people I knew personally, there wasn't a whole lot of, of defense of his actions. But as time went on, I did see a growing attitude. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, the comments uh, made on the bus that, that right. quickly began to be described as locker room talk. Right. Not we call chance. it we call it sin, right? Yeah. That is, uh, if if anyone else in a similar circumstance had said those sorts of things, that would have and should have been condemned, right? As as sinful, right? Uh, abusive language, right? And there there was. Uh, a dismissive attitude in a lot of corners that, well, that's just locker room talk, which, which yeah. suggests to me, well, I mean, that's how men talk behind closed doors. <laughs> uh, not Christian men that, that are faithful Christian men that I would want to look up to or that I would accept if I were in their presence. That right. That's not okay. It's right. not. Uh, but I did see and hear defenses of it, even uh, to whatever degree. And it's very strange because... <laughs> the thing about Donald Trump that um, that I, I do see as kind of the Trump phenomenon is if, and, and especially now, this many years after the world had to start watching Donald Trump and, and hearing what Donald Trump said, is that there is so much talk <laughs> that then you have a hard time pinning down which what exact talk are we talking about because yes there is just plain gruff language mm-hmm. but then there is language that is so coarse and so unacceptable yeah. uh, that this it has to be condemned right uh, and yeah and, there's a difference between being coarse and being explicit you right. know and he crossed that line on I would say on multiple occasions right uh, yeah I I don't know that I heard here's the thing I don't know that I heard any of, of my friends that are Christians defending that. Mm-hmm. But I did hear plenty of them, maybe maybe there was an increased uh, forgetfulness as time went on of that kind of thing or or acceptance of that because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. Right. I, I, you know, I, I, would, I would come to the defense of, of my friends who, who did, you know, vote for Donald Trump and say, yeah, most of them never did come out and to this day would not say no nah, what he did or said there was was okay or good right. or whatever they, they would condemn that still but um yeah right and and so that's the first thing that i think we should be really clear in yes. saying is that look lesser of two evil arguments do play out in politics i mean politics is a situation where uh what's the quote uh democracy is the worst of all possible forms of government except for all of the other other forms of government <laughs> and in a lot of I've situations it's a very good one yeah, it's it very is. useful yeah. and in a similar way uh in a lot of elections you just end up with 
a couple of choices that are not great choices yeah. and you choose one and you don't have to apologize for yeah. that, but also you don't have to rationalize and defend the actions of this person just because you voted right. for them. Right. That has to be said. That has to be said. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's such a great difference too between, I actually, I would stand by something that, uh, that John MacArthur said before the primaries, uh, in 2016, when he was on a panel discussion with a few other guys, I don't remember who all was there. It was at um, maybe like a G3 conference or master's conference or something like that. He um, he was asked, you know, what kind of evangelicals are supporting Donald Trump? Because even in the primaries, he had what, according to the polls, a pretty decent percentage of evangelical support in the primaries when there were other options, other candidates. Right. And when he was asked, you know, what kind of evangelicals are supporting Donald Trump at that time? Uh, John MacArthur said, the kind who don't go to church. Right. And man, I think I would stand by that assessment at, at largely, uh, to be largely true, that the evangelicals that were supporting Donald Trump in that time, when there were so many other far better candidates, mm-hmm. um, and, and especially those who were coming out, you know, aggressively supporting and, you right. know, kind of championing, championing this man. Yeah. The, um, the difference is after that, primary was over and he was the candidate alternative to Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. that's a different ball game you know you know it changes at that point mm-hmm. at that point I would no longer say anyone who supports or votes for Donald Trump is an evangelical who just doesn't go to church that's not a true statement anymore right yeah yeah and and, and that's certainly an element uh, of this that when you live through a time of massive change like we do, uh, like we have and we continue to, um, you're going to have a certain set of people who are basically longing for yesteryear uh, and and look for, for folks who, if that is your longing, um, that's hard because you're not going to get yesteryear. Yeah. There, there, yeah. Are, there are new challenges that the church is facing, but I, I look now, and as a person who started out in ministry, and I can remember having a sense of what ministry I expected it to be like would be well, most of the people I talk to uh, know or at least admit to me, say that they know they ought to be in church, that they ought to be right with Jesus, and then we talk about it, and then they say, yeah, 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 I'm going to start coming to church, and then I go away from them, and then they don't, and then they don't have a life change. But it's a, it's a lot of sort of lip service, um, and I, I remember trying to wrap my head and my heart around the idea that my ministry would be spent trying to talk people into something uh, and thinking that I was getting somewhere and then not really getting somewhere because people often would just tell me, uh, yeah, you're sure you're probably right. I'll go along with that. You know, like that idea uh, that people in the South know which church they're not going to. Uh, that, that, that sentiment has carried in the parts of the Midwest where I grew up as well. Yeah. Um, but I get the sense now that that's just not what we're going to live through any longer we're, we're looking at a different future real opposition uh is here yes and honestly uh one, i mean one if it's reality then i accept it but two bring it on i mean it is better to know what you're facing rather than to have this wet noodle yeah. sort of attitude that doesn't come to anything that you get a lot of the time and so i do accept it yeah um well, let's let's uh, yeah. 
we could spend obviously a lot of time and a lot sure. of time's already been spent on that, but there are always a couple of things you, at least a few things you got to say about uh, these issues. But then uh, I want to ask about the, the, these divisions because mm-hmm. um, he mentions the second thing, which is sex abuse scandals in evangelical churches and parachurch organizations. Um, in particular, in Baptist churches, being independent churches mm-hmm. provides a special challenge mm-hmm. to these sort of struggles. Um, why do you think that sex abuse scandals in churches like we are in are especially... Uh, why are sometimes our churches prone to them? And what do you think our churches need to do because of that? Yeah, that's a, that is a big question. Um, you, you outlined kind of a part of the problem, which... I, I wouldn't say is the problem, problem, not the biggest problem, but it is a definitely, I guess, a, a channel in which the problem is allowed to grow and fester. You mentioned, you know, us as Southern Baptists being independent churches, um, the idea behind that is that every church in the, in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, is autonomous, meaning that we are self-governed. We have no overarching right. structure, uh, you know, top down like many other denominations do, but each church is is autonomous. We ordain our own uh, pastors. We uh, appoint our own uh, elders and deacons. We we take care of business, the business of the church right. on our own. We, we are self-funded, all of that kind of stuff. Um, what that means then is that if one pastor, which is essentially what happened in, in a lot of those scandals, was there would be this one uh, pastor who would exercise some sort of abuse or you know do something uh, egregious, something that frankly, in many cases, was disqualifying. And where one of the major missteps was is that many of these churches, rather than removing this man and allowing this to be public, this thing that he did, they would do their best to keep it under wraps, yet dismiss him quietly. Yeah. And what he would do, he would go, he would go to another church, right. take a position there, and because there's no overarching structure, right. overarching structure, uh, he was allowed to take a position there, and they would accept him, saying, "Oh, but yeah, you did ministry over here. I know you, you know, whatever." Right. But there's no communication many times between the churches. It's just sure he comes on and then is allowed to abuse again, and and what that turns into is almost a a covering up by the one church as they then send this abuser to another church, and and there's missteps there, and I I think that the the autonomy of the local church that we see in Southern Baptist life. Is it was used as a means by which this problem was allowed to get worse, uh, but I don't see it as the the total problem. I think one of the biggest problems is um, is valuing the wrong things in leadership and in uh, in what we look for in our pastors, um, because frankly, in First Timothy, you know, you see the qualifications for elders, and First Tim and Paul's goal in First Timothy, what he spends the the most amount of time on is character, the character of these men. Um, but what we oftentimes look for the most and spend the most time on when we think about what makes a good pastor is we think about ability mm-hmm. and man, there's a lot of guys out there that have, are really talented, have great abilities, um, but have, as far as character goes, nil, you know, right. and, and that was demonstrated in many of those sex abuse scandals. The reason these guys were able to go to other churches and places because they were talented, right. they were gifted in, in public speaking or, or in, in, they were very charismatic, whatever the case may be. Um, but then that, you know, led to all kinds of abuses. And so, yeah, I, I see that as a, as a problem that was not helped by the way the system was being autonomous churches, but I don't see that as the biggest problem, but at, just as a means by which the problem, I don't know, was allowed to get worse, I guess. Right. Well, and this is not by any means an excuse as much as it is, uh, I want 
people understand that uh, in, in for a lot of churches, that church is autonomous. It, it, that church is able to govern itself right. and nobody else governs it. So that um, whereas some denominations, you have this hierarchical structure, mm-hmm. it's just a different situation yeah. when you don't have that, that literally uh, the way in theory our churches should work is that the pastors, that the pastor answer to the congregation uh, and that everyone then is under authority because mm-hmm. the congregation also answers to the pastor. I mean, it, it, Baptists are big on the priesthood of believer, yeah. meaning we are priests to each other. We serve each other. We watch out for each other. We confront each other. We guard each other. And when we fail at that, we will answer yeah. to God for that. Yeah. But I, I think you're exactly right that often the worship of talent is what starts us down the road of trouble. Um, I remember in uh, one of the classes that I had at the seminary that uh, talked about how how should we check uh, those who are looking to go into ministry. Uh, talked about three C's, that there is a calling, and then there is character, and there is competence. Mm-hmm. But um, you mentioned the word charisma, and I think that we often would like to add that as its own C. Well, I don't yeah. want to sit and listen to somebody who's not exciting and He's not, (laughs) you know, particularly gifted. And uh, look, the Lord has never promised you uh, a charismatic leader. And I think that's something that that we are challenged with, that that we uh, in our churches have often gone, well, I I want somebody who's very talented. I want somebody to impress me and wow me. Um, You know, look, uh, it is the Lord Jesus who is meant to wow us. And uh, we have no problem with talented people. But if you begin to to worship talent, if you begin to uh, yearn for charisma, yeah. uh, you've gone down the wrong path. And, yeah. and that seems to be where a lot of this started yeah. and an explanation of why people are able to leave a church and then yeah. move to somewhere else and to do the same thing. Yeah. And, and I'll say, you know, with regards to this, because you know, he's talking about the divisions. So he's, he names Donald Trump and these sex abuse scandals in churches and parachurch organizations as, you know, the, what what's causing all this division among evangelicalism. And like... I think it's true, but I think the division is coming um, it, not as though some people are saying, oh, sex abuse is fine or good, and others saying, no, it's bad. I would say overwhelmingly evangelicals, the church, because he's really, in throughout this article, I think he uses the word evangelical that could also be interchanged with church or churches. Yeah. Um, but all rightly condemn say no 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 sexual immorality sexual abuse is wrong we're not promoting it right um i think where the disagreements come and the and the kind of arguments when it comes about when you begin to discuss like maybe how to solve the problem or what the root of the problem is or these kinds of things it's never i say sex abuse is okay i say it's not that's not the debate you know and i think the article could tend us to lean towards that like well some people are okay with sexual abuse. Some people are okay with racism. Right. Uh, you know, that's not the case. That's not the case. Right. Uh, th- there are further questions about uh, how do you organize your church based upon these right. issues. And look, um, accountability is sometimes lacking yeah. in our churches. And, and uh, I, I want to say to anybody listening, if you know of 
a leader or anyone in your church who is not accountable to anyone else, then that's not right. It's, it's not thing. supposed to be that way. Right. It is right. not supposed to be that way. And in, right. in a biblical system, everybody answers to somebody. Right. And not just uh, God. Uh, everybody answers to somebody human. Right. <laughs> uh, that we don't. We don't have anybody. We 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 are the people who know that we are broken in our sins, all parts of us. So we are the people who have to look at each other and to go, hey, I need guardrails, and I need other people in my life to to help me to run between those guardrails and not to right. jump over them. And I need people in my life to ask me regularly, are you okay? Yeah. Are, are, you seem off. Is there something going on with you? We all ought to want that. Yeah. And I need guys in my life to tell me, hey, that thing you just did or that thing you just said, that was wrong. Right. And you need to repent. Right. Like We need that. Right. And so uh, the third issue that he mentions is that attitudes about race relations have been challenging and different among various churches, especially after the killing of George Floyd. How have you seen uh, different attitudes uh, related to race relations and particularly the killing of George Floyd? Uh, I would say, again, I would first of all clarify the, the attitudes about race relations that he's talking, that he, as he labels it here, does not mean that some people within churches are saying racism is fine. Some people right, within churches right. are saying racism is not fine. But uh, I actually wrote down, in, in my copy of it, I jotted down, put um, CRT. Because right. you cannot have a conversation within or without the church uh, without this phrase now cropping up. A phrase that just a few years ago, right. none of us knew. Right. But now we hear it all the time. Um, and I would contend a phrase that the overwhelming majority of us still don't really know what it means, right? I, I'll sit here and say, honestly, I, I still struggle with, okay, what does someone mean when they say critical race theory? Right. Um, but, um, yeah, so we, we actually at our church where after the killing of George, George Floyd, um, and after, you know, I, I, don't even shy away when someone says the murder of George Floyd. Like, no. I don't shy away from that. Like, that doesn't bother me. Um, but what I would also say is, or what what happened in our church, just as kind of a microcosm, is that um, when the Black Lives Matter rallies were going on and there were some in our church who uh, even went to uh, a Black Lives uh, Matter rally downtown and there were others in our church that were like, how could you do that? How yeah. could you possibly support that group and this and that and and the people who went were saying whoa i i just want to stand up against i don't i'm opposed to racism and i think right. that the uh that this killing of george floyd was was wrong and unjust and and i was trying to show my support like that's it yeah and like their their intentions that was their intentions you know but then from the other side you get yeah but this group believes this and this and this and, and say things that are absolutely right that right. that group does believe those things and and holds to certain values and condemns certain values that we right. would not align with. Um, and so that's where things start to clash then. And you begin to have church members at each other's throats over these issues of how can you, how can right. you call yourself a Christian and not uh, support Black Lives Matter? How can you call yourself a Christian and support Black Lives Matter? Right. You know, and... But here's what the thing, though, is when you get all these people together in a room, which is what we did, we said, we're not going to discuss this on social media anymore. Right, right. 
you all need to stop this. We told our members this. You need to stop talking about this on social media and we're going to get together at the church on this date and we're going to talk about these issues face-to-face, in person, with a heart of charity and kindness and respect to one another. And the conversation went great. And you know what? We left that conversation with people saying, still saying, yeah, I don't have a problem with supporting Black Lives Matter. And other people saying, I still do have a problem with it. But they walked out together saying, man, I'm glad we had this talk. This was much better. I understand where you're coming from now and, and things like that. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if I really hit on the exact question you were asking me, but... No, you did. It's uh, one thing that I, I think is enormously encouraging about what you said is that these questions are so difficult on their own, but I think the context they've been introduced into is a context of uh, individualistic people who are very bad at community. And then when we are bad at community and we expect this issue to be solved by a tweet or by some sort of post, um, it will not be. These tools that we've been given, uh, the faith that we have in them is severely misplaced. And then meanwhile, why is it then that we are uh, so accustomed and satisfied with the idea that, well, I'll put this out and that will be the end of it. And we don't lean into opportunities to actually engage about these issues. Uh, another thing that was in there that I, I think that we all just have to commit to is that uh, as best as you can, you, we've, we've got to understand the terms that we're using. Oh, yeah. It is fruitless and useless to use terms with no idea of the content right. and assume that other people will think in the same terms as you are when you have an, right. an idea how to define your terms, especially for things as complicated uh, as, for instance, uh, critical race theory. Critical theory alone arises out of a legal context. I don't know very many people who think uh, in legal terms or in, uh, in, in as tight a manner as lawyers tend to think, and critical theory arises out of that school, out of that frame of mind that Everything surrounds power and that to see the whole world in terms of power structures mm-hmm. is what critical theory, what any kind of critical theory arises out of. Right. And to judge all actions of people based upon power structures. And so then critical race theory to assess races in terms of power, in terms of historic power structures that have been in existence uh, if we agreed upon what that even looks like, then can we move on that? Can we get anywhere? It's uh, Maybe. <laughs> and this is uh, uh, a part of what is so challenging because I honestly don't know anyone who would say, oh, the, the killing or the murder of George Floyd was acceptable. Right. N- right. No one thinks no. that that was acceptable. And... Everyone that I've talked to agrees that some police officers misuse their power. Sure. You would be foolish to deny that. Right. You'd be foolish to deny that. Yeah. And, and, And again, from what Christianity teaches us is that anytime you have power, it it is dangerous. I mean, um, Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite works of art of the past 100 years. The, one of, if not the main purpose of the Lord of the Rings, it's an allegory of power. It's a story about power yeah. and about how power can be used and misused. 
and, and Tolkien literally saw what kind of a world this is and created these little powerless hobbits to say, even the smallest person can change the course of this world. Mm -hmm. And so we have to know that as Christians, that power can always be misused. Even a person who has been faithful for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years with the power that they have been entrusted with can be unfaithful in their 51st year. Yeah. And that's just a fact that we know. Yeah. And so uh, that's present there. Yeah. Um, but I, I, all this, I know that we, we spent a lot of time just talking about this first point, yeah. but swimming in this water, uh, living in this complicated, uh, divided world that we've been living in has put us all off balance to some degree, but I, the commitments that we have to have are to take the time to sort it out. Yeah. A lot of the, the what I see that is the frustration is the assumption that we should have already gotten past this. And, oh, yeah. and, and the thing that I yeah. want to say is, well, we're not. Right. There is work to be done, and it is it is foolish to look at work that needs to be done and to go, well, I wish it was already done. <laughs> well, so does everybody, yeah. uh, but it's not. And so uh, wherever we are, let's assess where we are and then begin. Um, yeah. That is one of the conclusions uh, that yeah. I have about this. Uh, his next quote is, uh, that I had highlighted is this, uh, quote, Part of what's happening amid this turmoil is that people are sorting themselves into like-minded political tribes. Uh, if you had told me that people would switch churches because of masks, I would have been like, that, that's ridiculous, uh, says David Bailey, whose group Erebon does reconciliation work across a series of divides. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because... It, we, we I, I think I would agree that those three issues that we have already highlighted would be the three most divisive issues, but the fact that we haven't really mentioned masks yeah. yet or uh, the vaccines, yeah. pandemic, there are plenty of other things that oh, have yeah. divided uh, people, but that's a part of a part of something that we haven't uh, really probably done, most of us, is to assess the number of things that have opened up divisions among people in the past few yeah. years as we have been brought down to day-to-day -day reality to base realities of health, life, best practices, and, yeah. and all of these sorts of things. Uh, he goes on, uh, quote, but it's happening. It's not just normal bickering. Uh, what Mindy Bells notices is that there is now a common desire to pummel, shame, and ostracize other Christians over disagreements. That suggests to me something more fundamental is going on than a fight over just Donald Trump. So that brings uh, a great question. Uh, what are the deeper realities that we don't really pay attention to when we get hung up in talking about what are important realities in talking about how dangerous it is to embrace leaders who aren't worthy of that embrace, how dangerous it is to possibly let uh, sexual abusers skate and get by with it and how dangerous it is to allow people to mistreat each other. But, but what spiritual issues might lie underneath those issues? Man, oh man. <laughs> you almost want to say like a laundry list, I guess. But uh, um, but again, I, you know, what, what's the question she has? It suggests something more fundamental is going on than a fight over just Donald Trump. And I agree with that. I think to just narrow this down to Trump, or to Trump or not to Trump, um, is just way too reductionist to, of a perspective to take. Um, but as far as what are the underlying issues, man, I, I think there, there, there are a plethora. But 
Um, I could give the easy answer and say pride because that's basically underlying every single one of our, our kind of issues. But um, yeah, I think it's a lack of charity as much as anything else, um, largely. It's, it's not only, it's not only, but everything that we've just talked about, you know, with regards to all these things and dividing each other into camps and, you know, oh, I'm leaving my church because they make me wear a mask and this right. one doesn't or this or that. In all of these cases, so often what is lacking is any charity for our brothers and sisters in Christ, right. um, which is selfishness. It's pride. It's now right. I care about myself only, or at least right. myself first. And um, and I think that, that bears its head in, in all of these different ways. Uh, and yeah, and when there's such a lack of charity for other people, then a political candidate becomes a fight even among quote-unquote, evangelicals. Even within the church, mm -hmm. uh, a political candidate becomes such a divisive issue. Uh, and that happens largely, it's allowed to happen because of lack of charity. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this issue of pride is so important to take stock of because uh, pride, I think, has two real ways it shows itself. There is the side that we expect, which is the uh, the vanity up to arrogance, up to pure I feel great because I proved you wrong and that makes me right. And I love feeling right. That whole side of things. But then there is the self-pity side of pride as well. That poor pitiful me who never got my shake now finally proves myself or that me and my people are right because we're on the right side of history because we were the good guys all along. Mm -hmm. That both of those play out in part because we've been given these tools that enable us to find like-minded people like us who will agree with me and say that I'm right about everything. Uh, that's a horribly dangerous thing. It's uh, growing up before these sorts of uh, things became so prominent, it, it's, it was a peculiar blessing that none of us knew when you had to be around people who didn't agree with you all the time. Yeah. And that was your only choice. Yeah. Uh, whether that was your family or your small town, in my case, or these sorts of things that different kinds of people who didn't just agree about everything. But now any of us can find people who agree with us about yeah. anything. And it is a wonderful thing to feel right. I mean, look, uh, we all want to self-justify. And if we do not have the righteousness of Christ to cover us, someone else to justify us, we, we, we need to feel like we are a good person. Yeah. You, 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 you're not objective about yourself. You want to believe you're a good person and you will go to great lengths to prove to yourself that you are a good person. Mm -hmm. And those issues uh, seem to be at the root of a lot of the challenges that we are facing as things change so rapidly and as we've all been through a very traumatic experience, yeah. as we've all been through difficult times. People who've lost loved ones, yeah. people who have endured great hardship uh, being alone, during this time and, and all the stories that we're going to be hearing about for years and years coming out of this pandemic, mm -hmm. it is, um, it's going to show itself in some harmful ways and it already has. Yeah. I would, I would add to that too. You know, when you think about people leaving churches over something like masks, man, that's absolutely true that they do. But frankly, people have been leaving their churches for over silly reasons as long as I've been alive, That's true. and you and I were talking about this just earlier today, uh, before the podcast, that um, our churches desperately need to teach more on the importance of church membership. Yeah, um, that to be united in a covenant uh, commitment to your local church is no small thing, and um, and and honoring those commitments that you make, 
if you've made no commitment to your local church, then you are under no compulsion or under no, um, frankly, even constraint to stay at that church when things get unpleasant for you there. Mm-hmm. And so you leave, and, and it, people leaving their church over an issue like this, I think, often is a demonstration of uh, just a a forsaking of their commitment that they made to the local church. Yeah. Or a recognition that they've made no commitment to that local church, which right. is also a problem. Right, and that's... Um... That is a major issue, this this issue of easy believism, which has been with us for a while, which will uh, and has already, hopefully, to some degree, fallen away in a time when believing isn't so easy yeah. anymore. Uh, yeah. It does change. Can I say something else? This would get also at uh, where I would complain about that definition that I gave of an evangelical, Yeah, is that it is where I would say it definitely does not encompass what it would mean to be a faithful Christian is areas like this. This says nothing about uh, the necessity of of the local church or anything yeah. like that or, or yeah. anything. So you can be an evangelical and be completely disconnected from the local church according to this um, kind of standard, what it means. So there are differences where I would say no longer do I believe uh, that evangelical is a, uh, a synonym of faithful Christian because this is one area in which <laughs> it doesn't meet the standard well and that and that makes me even uh challenge myself in that i am too comfortable with my definition of christian being a set of beliefs it's it's too much of an intellectual emphasis and not enough of an emphasis on the fact that this is a commitment to a person jesus christ but then to a people yeah. the, the church his his body his and bride then, yeah. and then to our neighbors. I mean, it it is not an abstract idea. Uh, Jesus didn't die for abstract people. He died for real people and people that he walked with and lived with. His hands were dirty and he constantly deals with the challenges of what it is to live with people. And and so uh, that is something that we have to keep in in our minds and in our mouths as we talk about this. Because you're right, it is um, too often boiled down to a certain number, a certain set of beliefs uh, that that don't necessarily intersect with human lives of any kind. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, the before I, I do move though to this, uh, the the part that I'm going to get to pretty quick is some recommendations that Tim Keller has to move beyond this moment. But uh, from the body of the article, are there other things that you wanted to bring up? Oh man, there was so much in this article. Um, David Brooks is a very talented writer and it comes out in this article and pretty much everything he writes that I've read, I haven't read everything mm-hmm. he's written, but everything that I've read of his that he writes, I think he writes in a, he's a very good writer. Um, but man, I, I did have a lot of problems with the article um, because he gave a lot of examples of like where there's conflict. In the first page, he gave three different examples of like conflict but gives basically no details as to okay what the conflict was over what were the uh, what were the problems actually at at the heart of this um, he just says oh look division oh look division oh look division and you know maybe in some of these cases that was like good division but I think in some of the in the some of the situations he lays out it's kind of like yeah what you're calling like division and evangelical and he clearly proposes oh, this is the good side mm-hmm. versus the bad side. Um, I'm like, man, I, I think you writing, and he's he's not an evangelical. He doesn't call himself one. And um, and frankly, I don't know that he's a Christian. He says in, in another book that he wrote that uh, he wavers back and forth on 
whether or not he believes in the resurrection, uh, which is certainly concerning. He says that his Jewish faith is as important to him as his Christian faith and various things like that. So um, he clearly has uh, an idea of what is right from his perspective and, right. and I think would desire to impose that upon evangelicalism as he sees it. And, uh, and that comes out in different ways. And what, one of the ways, like, well, let me see here. Uh, he uses examples, um, and then I, f- I think, frankly, just doesn't give enough details as to, as to why that is or what that means. So he, he references three different Moors. He talks about Russell Moore, Beth Moore, and Lecrae Moore um, as examples of like people who uh, essentially came out away from evangelicalism or, or had problems with it or kind of, I think he calls it bearing witness against evangelical Christianity as it stands. Um, and he uses one example of Beth Moore, uh, her being one of the most prominent Bible teachers in the evang- evangelical world, he says, uh, that she was stunned when her fellow Southern Baptists did not reject Trump after the access Hollywood take. She became more vocal in denouncing Christian nationalism and misogyny before breaking with the Southern Baptist Convention last year. Yeah. And then she's quoted, there comes a time when you have to say, this is not who I am. She told Religion News Service. And that's all he talks about the Beth Moore situation, as though the entirety of the issue with Beth Moore was Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Or maybe misogyny a little bit. But there was more to that issue than that. And if if you keep up with, if you kept up with the issue, you'll know that like, and he left out a lot of details as though um, Beth Moore was just completely in the right in all of this. And the SBC was completely in the wrong and it's completely misogynistic and all that stuff. No, man, there's so much more to it than that. Um, and I think that's that's the case also in the other examples that he gives, uh, but he just kind of uses them to meet his needs as he writes this article. And I guess I find that kind of frustrating. Well, I did mention at the beginning, you know, he talks about Dr. Moeller too, yeah. um, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and came on as the editor of the opinion section of, uh, what was it, World? World, uh, World Magazine. World Magazine, right? yeah. So he came on... Uh, as the uh, the what do you call it the general oh, editor there I you believe. go general editor of the opinion section and there were some people at World Magazine that quit their jobs left because of that right and David Brooks clearly portrays this as like he's the wrong person he's not a good representation of evangelicalism uh, and it's it's a bad thing that he comes on as general editor I mean that's the way I read it that's the way he clearly portrays it. Um, but offers no explanation as to why, other right. than it seems he doesn't like Dr. Mueller's uh, conservatism and doesn't like that in the 2020 presidential election, Donald Trump openly supported, or uh, excuse me, Dr. Mueller openly supported President Trump, Trump right. in his um, in in that election and, and voted for him that year. Right. But what he doesn't talk about is you know like in the 2016 election and leading up to that, Dr. Mueller was stroke up spoke out strongly against right. uh, Donald Trump and a lot of the things that he said and did and basically, frankly, said he didn't expect him to be a, a faithful conservative president. Right. Well, he turned out to, to make a lot of relatively conservative decisions in his presidency and everything. But anyway, I say all of that to say, I think you're, we're reading an article about evangelicalism um, from someone outside evangelicalism. I would agree with kind of an assessment that Dr. Mueller makes. Uh, and say that I, I would take everything he says in the article with a grain of salt, recognizing that fact. That doesn't mean I disagree with everything he says in the article. Um, 
do we want to get to that last quote or do it later? Oh, no, that's... uh, We'll talk about that that later. Right. Um, I I agree with what you're saying that um, there is more to me these stories. Uh, So, for instance, the Beth Moore story, there were questions about was she preaching at churches on... uh, to mixed groups, you know, look, uh, conservative denominations such as ours agree and believe strongly that when the scripture teaches that do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, that women are not to preach in a church. Women do not hold the office of pastor. Um, in a comparable manner, uh, Russell Moore as president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, some will remember that uh, he came out and said, "Look, I, I don't, I don't think anyone could support uh, Donald Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that morally this is a candidate that we could get behind." And then, of course, uh, Donald Trump put out a tweet that said, <laughs> "Russell Moore is a nasty guy with no heart," yeah. and these sorts of things. Oh, his uh, his response to that tweet, by the way, is my favorite Russell Moore moment ever. <laughs> when he he responded on CNN. Dr. Russell Moore said one of the greatest lines. He said, uh, Donald Trump is right. I am a nasty, heartless human being. That's why I need Jesus Christ right, right. to give me a new heart, to forgive me of my sins. Right, I was right. just like, oh man, praise God for you, Russell Moore. That was right. awesome. Right. Um, the common thread, now there, there is something going on because the common thread between the Beth Moore story and the Russell Moore story yeah. is that when they did come out, there was a significant amount of people that decided you are now the enemy and you're going to hear yeah. from me yeah. and my people uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, lots of hate, lots of mm-hmm. lots of charged rhetoric, things that are way beyond the pale that we would not support, that got lodged at both of them. And that is, part of the dark underside of this is that certainly one thing that has happened is when people saw a lot of power did rest in what you could call the evangelical voting block. Mm-hmm. Well, then we do have an influx of people wanting to control that voting block. Right. And that is something that, frankly, even still to this day, and especially in the presidential cycle that's coming in two years, that is concerning to me because I know that uh, there is a desire on the part of many different groups to control the votes of this significant block of voters um, as communities have stratified and separated out any group becomes more important because if you can sway leadership in that group then you will sway that group as a whole mm-hmm. and uh, that is the only thing I will say as far as what uh, little explanation I have for uh, what I, I know uh, Russell Moore went through in part after yeah. uh, coming out against Donald Trump that yeah. um Political smearing and targeting uh, gets very low. It yeah. gets very coarse, and mm-hmm. that he did experience. Uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. that. And and that's yeah. I, I yeah. I agree with that. And what and when I said I yeah, I think there was a reduction in the article, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that what you're saying is also not true. In fact, frankly, when Dr. Moore left the the SPC. I didn't really say like, oh, well, how could he do that? Oh, man. I kind of said, yeah, I get it. I don't blame him. Like, I don't know that I would have wanted to stay in his shoes either after all that happened. So. Right. It is. Um, 
even though I am still right. a Southern Baptist. Right. It, it, to get to the position, uh, I don't know too many people who long to be uh, serving in the public policy arm of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is what the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is, uh, to speak to policy yeah. politically. Um, but that was something that he desired for a long time, and yeah. then he had it, but it is a very dangerous and polarizing uh position to be in in any age and especially in our age and so uh for all these that we bring up we lift them up we we pray for their encouragement and their faithfulness uh in christ because uh a lot of difficulty uh, has gone on and i I bring this this up uh just because this is a new season uh the, the a simple fact that i think we can see is that We've had a reshuffling of groups. The issues that really, in a lot of ways, uh, have not been talked about and discussed in the church and in our culture at large, it seems that it's now time to talk about them. You don't talk about them for long enough and then they become so big that you have to talk about them. And two in particular uh, that I think are coming up are uh, politics. What is the place of politics? and, and how does politics live in a church? Uh, well, we didn't talk about it for a long time. It was not a, a point of discussion, and now it is so big that you can't not talk about it. Yeah. And then the second thing is class struggles, uh, the difference in relationships and uh, in lifestyles and issues because of uh, class. And those mm-hmm. things seem to be infused in so many stories, and we are not helping ourselves by not uh, talking about them at all. Yeah. So I, I do want to move then. Uh, uh, let me let me just do. I'll, I'll just mention three of these and then uh, ask you about them. So uh, David Brooks says, "quote The most detailed agenda I've seen in dealing with these issues has been produced by Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, Tim is a friend of mine. He says, but a lot of other people would agree that he has one of the most impressive and important minds in the evangelical world." Tim laid out for me an ambitious agenda to renew this community. And I'll just give you the bullet points. So here are the first three. Uh, The Christian Mind Project. Expand by a factor of 10 the number of evangelicals in graduate schools and the uh, professoriate in order to make the community more intellectually robust. A renewed church planting effort. Old churches merely attract pre-existing Christians. New churches attract new believers. Keller says Christians need to plant 6,000 new churches a year. He has already had a ton of success success on this front. Uh, Third, new campus ministries. Decades ago, many young people found faith via dynamic evangelical organizations for students, such as InterVarsity and Young Life. That field has been allowed to stagnate. So what do you, what do you think of these first three? Uh, What he calls the Christian Mind Project, which I hadn't heard about before, uh, renewed church planning effort, and new campus ministries. Uh, man. Um, well, so for the first one, Increase by a factor of 10 the number of evangelicals in graduate schools and the professorate, professoriate, I think is what you call it. I am assuming he means the number of professors, you know, evangelicals should become professors is what he's saying, I think. Um, And, oh man, I, and, and all of this in order to make the Christian community or evangelical community a more intellectually robust community. Um. Man, is it okay to say I'm indifferent on that? I mean, I, I 
I don't see anything wrong um, with with evangelicals, with our church members uh, going to graduate school. Um, I also don't necessarily see just a great benefit to the church to have more educated people in the church. Maybe unless that education is specific in some way. Um, but yeah, I just don't, I guess I, I guess I'd like to know what, why he's saying that. What is his rationale for how would this benefit the church? Um, but there's so many problems with this. Like, do you know that graduate school is expensive? Right. You know, uh, undergraduate school is, is expensive. Right. And, you know, I think about my family and I am, my older sisters both graduated, uh, from university, um, to use it in the British way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I graduated from university. Um, but I heard you went to college. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Uh, but my other two brothers did not. Mm -hmm. And... To be frank with you, my other two brothers make a whole lot more money than I do right now. Yeah, my other two brothers are not pastors of a small church, but you know, right, right. Um, this is just the way it is. Uh, but but at the time, you know, um, frankly, I don't know that uh, that my brothers could have afforded to go to go to college or right. to pay the debt afterwards or things like that. And then certainly to consider graduate school. I mean, I know there are options of scholarships and and uh, loans and, and all these things but i mean it's still it's just it's a huge cost sure. a huge time investment um and in fact one guy told me a mutual friend of ours uh, when he was recommending someone was asking should i get my uh, doctorate which he had just finished his doctorate and uh, and he said not if you love your family right right, right. <laughs> uh that's an exaggeration i think but it was really hard on his family as a man in his uh, 30s with Two children had a third during uh, that time. It was really hard for his family. Mm-hmm. And it's not saying he regrets doing it or whatever, but frankly, I just, I, I would like to know Keller's rationale for saying this needs to happen. And what are the consequences of it not happening? I mean, can people become intellectually robust apart from graduate school? I say yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I... Um... Here's my guess. I, I do have a lot of questions of the how because I think the how is very challenging. But as to the why, uh, I do think that it's pretty clear that, um, for instance, 85 to 90% of uh, graduates of Ivy League schools go to work at places like J.P. Morgan Chase. They go to, mm-hmm. to work in finance and they help these companies that make billions to keep making billions. Yeah. That is, I mean, literally when you're best and brightest quote unquote best and brightest are doing nothing but furthering high finance uh, I think you have a problem and then that is uh, that is where we are in a lot of ways and I, I agree that people can educate themselves but in terms of the influence of academia and where people are going out of academia, I think it's two places. They are uh, going to these finance companies or they are going to carry on the same agendas that academia has had, uh, which are what you would call left-wing agendas in, <laughs> in large part. And that I would think that is his main uh, goal in, in wanting... Uh, to expand by a factor of 10 the number of evangelicals in graduate schools in the prof- uh, professoriate. Mm. So you think he's thinking past graduate school, where are they going afterwards? 
not enough evangelicals are reaching that point and going out into these other places. Is right. what you're and, kind of thinking? And okay. not becoming professors of these schools, okay. yeah. influencing the direction. I mean, I think a lot of people, you, you could think about schools that are in uh, your vicinity, in your region, and what has been the general trend? What, what, are, what is the vision and the goal of these schools? What are they looking to accomplish? Most schools that I could point to are becoming... Wish, wishing they could become what Harvard and Yale and Stanford are. They're just doing it on a much less scale in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. And that's a problem if that is the only trajectory uh, for these schools. Yeah. There's so much more that goes, that goes with that too of like, um, none, a lot of this falls back on the church too to say, okay, if we are going to promote and push more people into academia, uh, into undergraduate and graduate studies, we need to make sure we're doing the best job we possibly can to prepare them for that. Yeah. Because frankly, we're going to go into these schools and they're going to encounter all kinds of things that if we've not prepared them for, sure. um, then their faith is going to, is going to waver and they're yeah. going to struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah. How about the other two, a renewed church planting effort and new campus ministries? Hate church plants. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. hate them. I bet. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously <laughs> our church, uh, was planted just five years ago. I got to be a part of planting that church a little over five years ago. Um, so I am very much on board with church planting. Again, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered still, like who's going to fund all the planting in these new churches? Is it the old churches that you just kind of hated on? Um, I don't know. Maybe he's not hating on them. I don't know. It sounds like to me, but I think also, do we just accept that he called what he calls old churches? I think he means churches that have just existed for a while. Do we just accept that they attract pre-existing Christians or should the argument partially be rearrange or perhaps uh, renew or whatever visions in those churches to yeah. seek to attract lost people and, yeah. and reach the lost? That's a problem. I don't think any church should ever accept. We're an old church, so we're just accepting already Christians. Right. Uh, that's, that's unacceptable, period. Right. So, um, But at the same time, I, I think I see what he's saying and, and not disagreeing with his premise. Yeah. There's a lot of questions in there. I always appreciate a very uh, terse statement uh, yeah. of an issue because uh, that look, just gave you that's one. that's a yeah. very potent way to phrase it right there. That uh, old churches merely attract pre-existing Christians and new churches attract new believers. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, if you wish it were not the case, then let's work to make it not the case. Amen. You know what I mean. And then, how about new campus ministries? Yeah, this one is probably the one I'm most conflicted on, um, because of because of my own experience in um, at USI, many friends that I had there that I have seen very connected, very involved in campus ministry, and um, that campus ministry becomes for them the an alternative to the church, right. which is ultimately detrimental to them, and I think will ultimately be detrimental for anyone who substitutes any sort of parachurch in for the church. And so I think this is, this is okay. So long as, so long as the campus ministry is done well in that it is seeking to push people into local churches rather than give them an alternative to local churches. Right. There is a danger in there that you um, do sort of the youth group thing. You create a fun experience that doesn't look anything like uh, any church. Yeah. Um, and, and this is sort of uh, evangelicalism's um, 
bag <laughs> in some cases. Is, yeah. Well, what do the people want? Well, how can we give them what they want and then insert a little bit of Jesus into it mm-hmm. uh, so that we can still call it church? Well, that is not the answer, and, uh, and that is a danger. And so uh, I, I hope and I do not expect that that is what the goal here would be, but that's certainly right. something to watch out for. Right, right. So, so in, in theory, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but because I also, I mean, my wife got saved through the ministry of, uh, of her campus ministry, uh, Student Christian Fellowship on USS campus. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, as much as I have seen bad things come out of, Right. Uh, you know, campus ministry efforts. A lot of good things have come out of it too, and so yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily hate that statement. Yeah. Okay. Three more. Uh, Protestant social teaching. Catholics have a public theology that dates back at least to Pope Leo the Thirteenth's encyclical Rerum Novarum. Protestant versions might share seventy-five percent of its ideas, while being perhaps less hierarchical and more individualistic. Uh, faith and work. He says faith is not just for Sundays. Keller should Keller suggests that there should be more education programs on how Christians should show up at work and in the world. And then racial justice. Keller argues that this is one of the most explosive divides between the Trumpian and the non-Trumpian wings of the movement. So what do you think about uh, Protestant social teaching? Yeah, it sounds a lot to me very similar to what uh, Russell Moore was the head of, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Conference. Um, isn't that what it's called? Commission. Commission, not mm-hmm. conference, commission. Um, which, yeah, I think has, has done a lot of uh, tremendous good uh, you know, especially under Russell Moore's leadership, I think did a lot of good um, in helping Christians understand how to think through issues. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a good thing. I would agree with that. And um, yeah, get rid of the bad things with regards to the Roman Catholic version of it, yet uh, yet keep the good things and maybe add to more good things related to the gospel. So uh, I'm on favor with that, on board with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about faith and work? Uh, education. Well, what do you think? What do you think? Christians should show up at work in the world. This is great when you answer the questions. Um, <laughs> Social teaching, Jackson. What do you think? Yes, no. I, I do uh, think that we have an opportunity right now to uh, speak about. I mean, look, theology is actually very helpful for your life. You are made in the image of God, therefore, you have worth. That's, that's everybody should know that, and yeah. everybody doesn't know that. Uh, I mean, even uh, G.K. Chesterton says that uh, sin is the only doctrine that can be conclusively proven from your day-to-day life. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it's there. And, and the fact that your own heart lies to you, that is very useful knowledge for your day-to-day life. Oh, yeah. uh, because, look, if you are continually making goals and then not meeting them, you might be playing games with yourself. Yeah. And man, you ought to know that. That's a key thing to know. It's important. Uh, you might just not be in control of yourself. And, you know, yourself is probably not telling you that. Yeah. Uh, yourself is actually probably hiding that from yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so these things are very useful. And, yeah. and in a day when, look, uh, Khan Academy is not a new thing. Uh, we can get all of the Christian teaching out in useful formats. And I hope that we do. Um, one of my favorite uh, YouTube channels is called C.S. Lewis Doodle. They just put the works of C.S. Lewis, and they just have a guy drawing them out as you go. That's pretty cool. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I wish they would draw out every useful Christian work that exists yeah. so that you get a visual aid for it. Yeah. Because this is 
Uh, part of the main change of our times is that this is a revolution in education. It's no longer a knowledge economy because knowledge is now pretty free. I really think it's a discipline economy now. The question is, can you pull yourself away from all the entertainment that now exists oh. for you and then engage in the knowledge? And man, for all of us, there is something mm. that we can just go, hmm, maybe just one more. Mm. Maybe just one more. Uh, for fine. all of us, there are all many right. somethings. You're convicting me now, Jackson. Well, Stop. there. Stop. So... Uh, so yes, I, I, I think that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say we're pretty well agreed then. Faith and work, there are more educations on yeah. how Christians should show up at work and in the world, how our work matters. Yeah. I mean, goodness, we're Protestants. Vocation is a yeah. thing. You are made to accomplish certain forms of work. And good news, people, you're going to work in the kingdom forever. Your yeah. work will matter uh, somehow in, in, yep. in, the, in the ways of God. He intends for that to matter. And so yeah. it has to matter now. Your talents do have a place. We just tend to treasure uh, certain talents way too much, you know. Meanwhile, where are the where are my knitters and my skaters in the world? Those uh, all these yeah. talents that don't get celebrated in the church. The Lord made them up. Right? Why do we all, Why do we prize certain talents and yes, not sir. others? It's not. Yeah. It's the not theology right. of vocation is an absolute must. Uh, agree with that one hundred percent. The Lord put Adam in the garden before sin existed yeah. and put him there to work the garden and right. keep it. Uh, work was invented before the fall. Do not believe the lie that your heart does tell you that says, oh, I have to go to work right. every day. It's like a product of the fall. No, right. no, no, no. We were created for this. Right. Good. Right, and I'll even speak uh, to racial justice. I see uh, Tim Keller get uh, get beat up on Twitter uh, yeah. quite often because he'll say, look, I, I think there probably are some structural problems. Um, and and, and I, I think that... Yeah, that, that's the case. There probably are some lingering structural problems, and then we should have discussions about what do you do about that. I am committed to equality of opportunities, and that's a challenge. How do you get to equality of opportunity where everybody does get a fair shot at it? I, I think that we, we have to be about that, yeah. and that, that those are questions that are hard to get at, but that we have to be yeah. continuing to pursue them. Yeah. Now, look, equality of outcomes, I'm not about that. I'm not about gaming the system to where it doesn't matter what you do there will just be bare percentages that get laid out. Uh, it encourages people not to try, and I, we cannot do that. But I, I think we have to be about asking questions of why are the structures the way that they are? Are some people mistreated in certain situations? Yes. What do we we got to be about trying to figure out what to do about that. What do you think? I agree with everything you just said and would just add to it with charity. Yeah, Again, sure. the charity is where this always goes awry. We can have this conversation, even if we disagree on whether or not X, Y, or Z is a systemic problem or an institutional uh, injustice. Right. If we are operating with charity, then we can come to different conclusions on that and still not have the division that's being exposed in this right. article. Uh, and then the last two, a strategy for a post-Christian world, how you evangelize among people who have never had any contact with faith and don't share the same mental concepts. And I mean, I think you're just speaking to that. Uh, you know, the old definition of tolerance was uh, basically out of respect. Even when you disagree with me, yeah. I can still listen to you and I can yeah. still engage with you. And uh, then disagree with it. Uh, yeah. To your it's face. Fine. And, it's, and it's okay. And it doesn't yeah. mean I'm not challenging your value. Yeah. I just disagree with you. Yeah. Uh, we have lost that and we have to recover it. Tolerance oh. never was never meant to mean we can just disagree and we're both right. right. Well, that's not, that's not a thing. 
uh, if you if you say that, you don't agree that, that there is absolute truth. And, right. That's and so um, arguments are enjoyable and meaningful when we're actually after something. Mm-hmm. But if there's nothing to be after, then it's, there's nothing worth arguing about. Um, and so... Amen. So that that's, seems really important, uh, and and one of the struggles right now is uh, are we going to be able to find any uh, ground from which to argue and to speak to each other from, and and uh, and that continues to be seen. There is no means of redemption right now, and there's not even much of a means among uh, across the spectrum. There there's no means right now of engagement, uh, and and that. I hope changes. We have to find some way to consistently engage with each other. And then the last one he says is spiritual formation. Uh, as Keller puts it, we need to really redo Christian education completely. Um, I don't know exactly what he means by that. Uh, that but, uh, okay, that's what I was asking through the whole article. Okay. What exactly do you mean by that? Sure. Um, but these, how Christian education is done, I do agree is important. Um, just recently read a book by Nancy Piercy, I told you about it, called Total Truth, um, which ar- argues for a uh, a better model of Christian education than what exists in many Christian schools and churches and contexts, um, one that is not simply using the world's philosophies for education uh, and just adding chapel onto the end of it, <laughs> but one that is a distinctly Christian model of education rooted in God's Word, right. um, and rather than one that's a hodgepodge of what we like about philosophies in the sure. world and then Christianized it, you know, put a Christian chocolate coating on it. Gotcha. Um, so, but I, you know, so I, I agree with that statement. Um, I don't think that all Christian um, educators and Christian um, schools or, or, or churches that, that educate, I don't think that they all are bad or maybe need, aren't doing it well. I think maybe some are, but right. overwhelmingly, perhaps a lot of them need to reconsider how they're doing it. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready for us to get to this last statement then. Tell me what you got. The last statement here. You want me to read it? Yeah. All right. So this is one of his concluding paragraphs. I think second to last paragraph. He says, finally, Karen Swallow Pryor said something that rings in my ears. Modernity has peaked. End quote. The age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissistic self, the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division a surging mental health crisis, and people just being nasty to one another. Millions are looking for something else, some system of belief that has com- that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning. I circled this quote in my article and said, agree. Because I 100% agree with this statement. Um, all of these negative things that he, that he says are left because of um, kind of what modernity has produced, this, this modern age, man, the autonomous individual, the first one he lists, I'm like, yeah, that is like, that is what motivates everyone today. Right. And, and is our, the thing that we worship is self-autonomy. Um, but everything else too, I mean, narcissistic self, age of consumerism, all of these things, like, man, we see these uh, all around us and in the church yep. and recognize the, the wrongness of it. Um, yeah, what do you think? I hope that it has. I, I, yeah. I have this sense that modernity has peaked. I, I hope that it has. That uh, You could imagine the the age that we're living in as if, uh, if modernity and modernism is this big boat that we have all been 
sort of drifting on. It's like we just hit a reef <laughs> and there's just, you're just seeing spouts of water pop up everywhere and everybody's going, I think something's really wrong. And hundreds of arguments are going on about whose fault it was and why everything is continuing to devolve uh, when it looks like boy, this boat just wasn't nearly as good as we thought it was. And, and that's, that's my hope is that everybody realizes that because these ideas uh, that, that individuals can just decide who they are, can whole cloth make themselves up as they go, uh, we can't. Right. It's, it's a delusion that we've often been living under. We, we even, uh, it, you know, um, one thing as you and I have become parents in the last 10 years and then you get inducted into this guild and you, you then see how different generations parent their kids. There's a whole generation of kids who were trained and told by their parents, well, you can be anything you want to be. Yeah. Um, and and that, is a, that is a loaded notion yeah. uh, and not a true notion right. <laughs> um, right. because uh, there are a whole lot of circumstances in this world that, that, that weigh you down, that set you up to certain conclusions you know a a kid who is born uh, addicted to uh, a narcotic of some Mm -hmm. kind uh, has certain struggles Mm -hmm. and and that's just an example of the fact that look we're all born into circumstances and we're we're not all just out in a little sailboat with infinite power going whichever direction we decide for it to go Um, we're all tied to other people and and that's uh, one thing that we often don't like to live with and think mm-hmm. about um but we have we've we've sacrificed a lot of other people for ourselves uh we we tend to focus on what we can buy and what we can use mm-hmm. uh d- without purpose without any kind of ultimate goal and we are reaping what we have sown mm-hmm. um the real question is are we going to look that in the eye i mean is that right. uh are, are we ready for something different or is this the project that we're going to keep being about raging at the world because it doesn't let us say, this is what I think I am. And I want you all to agree with me. Right. And you know, his last line there, millions are looking for something else, some system of belief that is communal that gives life transcendent meaning. Um, and you know, I think he's right. I hope he's right. Um, but frankly, because of everything else that has come before, this growing of the autonomous individual, narcissistic self, consumerism is all still going to have to be dealt with before any sort of good form of belief, communal living, transcendent life is going to be found. Yeah. And, and as the church, it is, it is our job. We are called by God to demonstrate to the world that, that Christ is the answer to this, that the church is this place of communal living, care for one another, uh, a system and you know he, he doesn't come out and say it um, because frankly I don't know if he would push people towards the church David Brooks himself but but I would say it is the job of the church to uh, to be that and all of these things that modernity has brought it is the job of the church to uh, help to minister to people and bring them out of that yep. um, and care for people because people are going to struggle with selfishness uh, individualism narcissism right. Right. consumerism all of these things that that just naturally stem out of pride but bear their their head in these specific ways. It is a job of the church to help people recognize these things and to um, work by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to um, to overcome those things. Yep. All of it is, it is all though, um, only made possible by Christ and His finished work on the cross. You know, um, 
again, you know, this gets back to the definition of evangelical, but, uh, but that is at the heart of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. If you want to call that an evangelical, fine. Um, but all of the things that we've discussed, all of the problems that are expressed in this article, um, the answer to them is Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Yeah. Uh, it is not simply new social programs for right. their sake. It is not simply um, reordering you know, our way of looking at things um, it's all, it comes down to the gospel, you know, and whether or not you accept or reject the gospel and the impact that that will have on your life. Right. That's well said. It's a good place to leave it. You got anything else? I don't have anything else to say. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and we hope to be with you again soon, and Lord willing, we'll see you next time.